And now here's another timely yet timeless word from the Word of God from one of our services at First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. How many of you remember Bob Newhart, the king of dry company? Uh, He had a show for, I don't know how many years, the Bob Newhart show. And on that show, he was a psychologist. And uh, this lady comes to see him for a session because she's afraid of being buried alive in a box. And so his counsel for her comes in just three little words. Just stop it. Over and over again, he tells her, just stop it. He's screaming at her. She tries to bring up how her mother treated her as a child, and Newhart goes, no, 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 we don't go there. Just stop it. Well, in some ways, Paul's command to those who are struggling with life-dominating sins sounds an awful lot like Bob Newhart's counsel. Paul says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. In other words, just stop it. And then after telling us to obey God, he gives kind of a blanket promise here in verse 14. He says, for sin will have no dominion over you. It's pretty clear. Stop sinning and obey God because sin shall not be your master. Got it? But as we all know, Overcoming stubborn, life-dominating sins is not as easy as just stopping it. Even though we often can see that these sins are having, uh, you know, a destructive effect in our lives, we keep falling into them. And so how do we stop it? How do we experience on a consistent basis the promise that sin no longer reigns? As I said in the past, the truths of Romans 6 are not easy to understand and apply. So I'm not suggesting in this message that you take these three Bible verses and you're going to be fine in the morning. It'd be great if it worked like that, but it doesn't. You're going to have to grapple with these truths until they become part of the fabric of your everyday thinking and practice. My aim is is to try to further your understanding and, and help direct you on that path. But you need to actively engage with this chapter, because if you don't, your sin will destroy you. It's a a life and death battle. In a nutshell, Paul says, don't let sin reign by following your lusts, but give yourself to God to live righteously under His grace. Let's pray. Father, again, we, we, we come before you simply because we know that, yes, we need your grace. And so I pray that it would be evident uh, through the exposition of your word this morning that, that you are the answer, that it's the grace that we have in Jesus Christ that frees us from sin. So God, just speak to our hearts and we'll give you praise for it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now I want to work through these verses under four headings. Number one, to apply these commands, you've got to understand and apply the truths that come before. That's all the way from chapter 1 through Romans 6, 11. I'm basing this observation on one of the opening words of verse 12, therefore. Right? Anytime you see a therefore, you need to see what the therefore is there for. It's saying what came before it. Therefore shows that the commands in verses 12 and 13 rest on the truths that Paul has set forth in the first five. Oh gosh, she's staring at me. In the first, oh now there you go. First, this little Emery over here, she's, mm. first five and a half chapters of Roman, Romans. If you haven't understood and applied those truths, it would be as useless uh, for you to try to apply the commands of, of verses in 12 as it was for the woman in Bob Newhart's office to just stop it. Now, we've spent over 30 messages in Romans. 
I want to recap Paul's main points. First, the universal human problem is for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, thankfully, God did not leave us under His judgment. He provided a way to preserve His justice and yet to justify sinners. He sent His own Son, Jesus Christ, to bear the penalty that we deserved. God now graciously justifies the ungodly person who does not work for salvation, but rather who believes in Jesus as his or her sin-bearer, thus reconciling us to God. Formerly, we were all identified with Adam in his sin. But now, having received God's free gift, we are united to Christ in his death to sin and resurrection to life, which we will fully experience when he returns. In the meanwhile, whenever we're tempted to sin, Paul says that, we saw this a couple weeks ago, we must consider ourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. John Murray explains it this way, to say to a slave, don't behave as, he, he was part of that culture, he says, if you say to a slave, don't behave as a slave, you're mocking his slavery. But if you tell a freed slave, do not behave as a slave, that encourages him to act in light of his new freedom. To say to a person outside of Christ, stop sinning, is useless. It's not going to happen. To say it to a person that Christ has freed from sin is meaningful and helpful. The commands that Paul gives in verses 12 and 13, they make no sense unless you are in Christ by virtue of being justified by faith alone. That's number one. Number two, sin is a tyrant that will reign over us if we allow it to do so. Paul says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. I'll try to explain these verses under, under uh, four headings here. A, uh, sin still has a strong appeal even to those who are dead to sin but alive to God in Christ. Paul's command there in verse 12 shows that we are on target uh, in verses 1 through 11. Do you remember we concluded that being identified with Christ in His death so that we are now freed from sin, that doesn't mean that we are now instantly sinlessly perfect or that we're immune to sin. We saw that's just not true. Believers still have strong desires for sin. When sin comes knocking, we don't automatically slam the door and say, I'm not interested. If that were so, Paul wouldn't have to give the command, let not sin reign. Being dead to sin is not a feeling that, you, that you're going to achieve someday when you mature in the faith. It's a spiritual truth that you must believe and act on often in opposition to your feelings and your desires, is true by virtue of your union or your identification with Jesus Christ. But that union with Christ does not eradicate the lust of the flesh. Well, B, sin's goal is not to assist you with your program for happiness and success. We tend to think of sin as a benign force that we can manage, that we can control. We hear the whisper, if you eat the fruit, you will be like God. Well, I've always wanted to be like God. Isn't that a good personal goal to have? Satan presented sin as if it were a good thing that would assist Eve in her quest for happiness. But that's now not how Paul paints the picture. 
Paul personifies sin as an evil tyrant that will reign over you and lead to death if you let it. It's like living with just a little bit of cancer. You can't do it. We know cancer spreads and, and it will eventually kill you. You've got to eradicate it all. Well, in the same way, you can't tolerate just a little bit of sin and think that you can use it, use it to safely pursue your own happiness. Men, you can't tolerate just a little bit of pornography. Paul says that if you are a slave of sin, the outcome will be death, and, and that's opposed to eternal life. I recently saw a video of a fisherman holding a small shark that he had caught. It was still alive and squirming in his hands, and suddenly it turned and took a small chunk out of the fisherman's shoulder. Sin is like that shark. As long as it's still alive in you, its aim is not to help you, it's to destroy you. You need to keep that in mind. See, sin seeks to dominate us through our bodies. All right? Paul commands, not, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. That's our physical bodies. He adds that you should not present the members of your body to sin. Several times in chapter 7, which we'll look at in the new year, Lord willing, in verses 5, uh, 18, 23, and 24, Paul makes it sound as if sin resides in our bodies. And we've got to be care careful here. An early heresy taught that the body and all matter are evil, whereas the spirit is good. This led to one of two extremes. On the one hand, some treated the body harshly, denying themselves proper food, warmth, and other comforts of life. They advocated abstaining from all pleasure, including that of marital relations. They saw that as the path to spiritual growth. But others, they responded, well, if my body is already evil then it doesn't matter what I do with it. It doesn't touch my spirit. So they indulged the flesh and justified it with their twisted logic. Now the truth is in between there somewhere. The Bible, Bible affirms that our, body, our bodies are good, that physical pleasure within the boundaries of God's Word is to be enjoyed, and that we are to use our bodies to glorify God. In Colossians 2.23, Paul says that harsh treatment of the body is of no value against fleshly indulgence. It's not going to tame the flesh. So it's most likely that when Paul here refers to your mortal body, he's looking at the whole person in terms of its interaction with the world. This is supported by the parallelism that we see in verse 13. Paul begins by saying not to present the members of your body to sin, but in the next line he says, but present yourselves to God. So the members of your body seem to be synonymous with yourselves. And the passions of verse 12, they're not limited to bodily desires like food or sex or anything else. They also include sins of the heart such as envy and jealousy and anger and greed and pride. So Paul uses the terms mortal body and members of your body because the way that these lusts of the heart manifest themselves is through our physical bodies. Leon Morris explained, saying, Paul is not arguing that the body is the cause of sin, but that, is the, that it is the organ through which sin manifests itself so that believers obey it. Now, Paul adds the word mortal there to emphasize the fact that we're all going to die in a few short years. 
Sin is pleasurable for, the se for a season. Scripture tells us that. But it leads to eternal death. The joy of being reconciled to God and the rewards of heaven, they are eternal. So it would be foolish to indulge the, the lusts of your mortal body for just a few short years, but lose the eternal joys of heaven. Rather, use your body to glorify God. Well, D, for sin to reign, you must allow it to reign by giving your body to it as a weapon for unrighteousness. Paul says, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Now, the word translated instruments, it can refer, refer to tools or instruments, but elsewhere in the New Testament, it always means weapons. So most likely, Paul here had in mind either giving your bodily parts over to Satan to use for weapons of unrighteousness or giving them to God as weapons of righteousness. The picture then is that the struggle against sin is really a mortal combat against an enemy that is seeking to destroy you. Bishop Lightfoot, he put it this way, Sin is regarded as a sovereign, do not let it reign, verse 12, a sovereign who demands the military service of subjects that you obey, verse 12. It levies their quota of arms, weapons of unrighteousness, verse 13. And it gives them their soldiers' pay of death. That's wages of verse 23. Picture yourself in combat with an assailant who has broken into your home. As he wrestles with you, he drops his gun. Oh, you break apart and you pick it up and politely hand it back to him. What? We're not going to do that, are we? That's how stupid it is when you use your body to sin as a weapon for unrighteousness. So to apply these commands, you must understand and personally apply the truths of Romans 1 through 6, verse 11. Also realize that sin is a tyrant that will reign over you if you let it do so. Number three, in Christ, exercise your will to say no to sin and yes to God. In Romans 6, 1-11, Paul has appealed to the mind. He uses the word knowing in verses 3, 6, and 9. He also appeals to the heart in verse 11 where he says reckon or consider, and that comes from faith, which comes from the heart. Now in verses 12 and 13, he actually appeals to the, appeals to the will. He's saying stop sinning and start obeying. But this appeal to the will... It rests on the knowledge of who you now are in Christ and on believing that truth when you face temptation. And then you must act on it. Three thoughts here. A, we have an active responsibility to stop the reign of sin. Paul directs the command to us, and he doesn't just say, let go and let God. No. Rather, to stop sinning, you must take aggressive action to deny its tempt uh, its attempt to rule your life. This is where just say no is a valid motto. Just stop it. You can't obey that command. In Christ, the power of sin has been broken. Years ago, I read about a young man who professed to be a Christian, but he was enslaved to some sin, and he'd been to many counselors, and they spent hours trying to help him analyze his past, and they were trying various techniques, but nothing had worked. He shared this tale of woe with a campus worker and finally asked, What do you think I should do? Well, the campus worker replied, I think you should stop doing it. The young man was stunned. He said, In all these years, 
No one ever told me to stop sinning. He didn't realize that that was an option. But isn't that what Paul is telling us to do when he says, flee immorality? That's 1 Corinthians 6.18. Or to flee from idolatry. That's 1 Corinthians 10.14. Or flee from youthful lusts. That's 2 Timothy 2.22. You see, fleeing is the opposite of hanging out with sin, much less welcoming it into your life. Flee. If movies defile you and put tempting thoughts in your brain, flee movies. If excessive spending is your thing, give your credit cards to your spouse or to a close friend. It's not really rocket science that we're dealing with here. B, victory over sin begins by personally giving yourself to God. Paul says, but present yourself to God. Now, the first use of that verb with regard to sin, it's in the present tense. Do not go on presenting. In other words, you've been doing it continuously. Stop doing it continuously. The second instance with reference to God is in the errorist tense. This is a little technical. Just hang with me. Errorist is, is, is close, close, closely related to our past tense. And so some authors, they emphasize that this is a once-for-all commitment. You did it sometime in the past. But Douglas Moo, he's a respected New Testament scholar, he cautions against putting too much emphasis on the variation of the verb tense here. He says the errorist imperative often lacks any special force being used simply to command that an action take place without regard for the duration, urgency, or frequency of the action. He suggests that since not giving ourselves to sin is constantly necessary, so giving ourselves to God as our rightful ruler must be repeated often. Now the verb present, that does not have the same passive meaning as yield, uh, but the more active meaning of give in service to. This implies that our main reason for wanting to overcome sin should not just be our own happiness, but rather for the glory of God. He bought us with His blood. Therefore, we must glorify Him with our bodies. Paul speaks explicitly to this in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 and 20. He says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit uh, within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. For you were bought with a price, therefore glorify God with your body. We now present ourselves to God as willing soldiers in His army for His purpose and for His glory. Now we're going to be happy when we give ourselves to God, but our primary aim is to glorify Him. Now, this is the, the problem with AA and other 12-step programs. They never dethrone self. God, however you conceive Him to be, is there to help you overcome your addictions so that you'll be happy. But He's not presented as the Lord who loved you and bought you out of that slave market of sin. Your motive for gaining the victory over sin should be to please the loving Lord who bought you with His very own blood. Give your bodily members to Him as weapons for righteousness. We'll see, victory over sin is only possible for those who are spiritually alive from the dead. Paul says, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. You were dead in your sins, alienated from God as His enemy. But He made you alive in Christ through that new birth, through that regeneration. 
This goes back to our first point, that to apply these commands, you first must understand and apply the truth of the gospel of justification by faith alone. And Paul expounds on that, of course, in chapters 1 through 5. You must no longer be in Adam under the reign of sin and death, but rather you must be in Christ, having received that new life by grace. Now, unbelievers, they can become more outwardly moral by self-effort. But it's kind of like putting a tuxedo on a pig. I've always wanted to try that. I've heard that saying. Uh, it's going to look good for a while, but you haven't changed the pig's nature. The first mud hole that it sees is going to be too tempting, and that tuxedo is going to be filthy again. To overcome the temptation, that pig needs a brand new nature. To overcome temptation on the heart level, you must be alive from the dead through faith in Christ Jesus. So to recap so far, number one, to apply these commands, you must understand and apply the truths of Romans 1 through 6.11. Number two, sin is a tyrant that will reign over you if you let it do so. And number three, but in Christ, we now have the power to say no to sin, but yes to God. And finally, number four, God promises victory over sin to those who are not under law, but under grace. Now, truth is, you could preach a couple sermons on just that one line. There were no under longer under law, but under grace. As a matter of fact, tonight will be kind of sermon take two, and we're going to be discussing that particular issue. I'm going to be quick with it this morning, okay? It is a difficult subject. Paul adds this verse to give us the encouragement and incentive to fulfill the commands of verses 12 and 13. The first part of the verse is a promise. It's not a command. It says, for sin will have no dominion over you. The second part of the verse explains the promise, since you are no, under, no longer under law, but under grace. The promise means that if you are not now experiencing consistent victory over sin, either at worst, you are not a genuine Christian, or at best, you do not understand and apply the truths of Romans 6. While genuine Christians do fall into sin, sometimes gross sins, they cannot remain there. They're going to be as unhappy in sin as a fish is out of water. They're going to be miserable until they get right with God again. There's no such thing as a Christian who lives consistently under the lordship of sin. Christians live under the lordship of Christ. Now, the explanation in the second half of verse 14 shows that grace has the power to conquer sin that the law uh, uh, lacks. Now, this runs contrary to legalists who think that you have to impose the law to keep people from sinning. Pharisees were very good about that. Paul says just the opposite. In chapter 7, he's going to tell us that the law brings the knowledge of sin. In, back in chapter 5, verse 20, Paul said, The law came in so that transgression would increase. Oh, my. The law arouses our sinful passions to bear fruit for death. Now listen to this, the law commands, but it has no, it contains no power to obey. The law is good, and what it commands is good, but it contains no power to obey. But grace, grace frees us from condemnation. It motivates us by God's undeserved love, and it empowers us by His Spirit whom He freely gives to all who trust in Christ. 
Grace In grace, sin no longer has to reign. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the, for the truth of your word. Father, it's for our good. Uh, it's for your glory. It reveals you, but it also reveals an awful lot about us. So God, we pray that you would help us to see what you want us to see. Each of us are in a different place in our walk. Father, whether we know you, whether we don't, don't it's one huge continuum of, of coming to know you. Father, I pray that if there's anybody out here that doesn't know Jesus as Lord and Savior, that you would convict them this morning, that you would open their eyes for them to see just who Jesus is and they would be drawn to Him. Not to anything that I've said, Father, except for what is in accord with your word. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace. And we offer this time to you now. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that can be easily remedied. We don't do it because of the benefits. We do it. It's called the good news, right? That's what the gospel is known as, is the good news. The reason it's good news is because there's bad news. The bad news is, like I said, we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of God's glory. Uh, this morning, if you know that you have never, you've never come to God acknowledging, yes, I'm a sinner, I can do nothing for myself. I need you. I need your son, Jesus. That's why God sent Jesus to die on the cross so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. If you don't know whether you have everlasting life this morning, don't leave this building wondering. You've got plenty of people in here, including me, Tyler, maybe some friends around you that will be glad to talk to you and let you know about eternal life, what Scripture says about it. You simply ask God to forgive you of your sins. He's the one you've sinned against. And you, ask, and, and, and you just trust Jesus. His completed on work on the cross some 2,000 years ago. You place your faith in that, not in yourself. Man, we are prone to say, I can handle myself. Thank you, I'll, I'll just take care of it. No, you won't. One day when you stand before God, the question's going to be, what have you done with my son Jesus? All right. So I encourage you, if you don't know Jesus this morning, come forward. Talk to me about it. If you're a believer, I hope that you're walking day by day and being conformed into the image of the Son. We'll see that in chapter 8. A Christian's life, it may look like this, and it's going to have ups and downs, right? We all know that, our walk. But it should, over time, be an upgrade. <laughs> we should be able to look back and say, yeah, I'm closer to Christ now than I was 20 years ago. I look more like Christ now than I did 20 years ago. I hope that you're walking in victory over sin because Paul says sin will not reign over you because you're no longer under law but under grace. I hope you're walking in grace today and defeating sin in your life. We do it to honor Him, right? Jesus said, if you obey me, what? Keep my commands. Okay, yeah, obedience is part of it, but we do it because we love Him. We do it because He laid down His life for us. He calls us to lay down our life for Him. I hope you're doing that in your walk with God. Thank you for joining us for this podcast from First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. You can find more information and follow us on Facebook or visit our website, crawfordvillefbc.com.